Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain, and today we have an interview with director William Lustig. Mr. Lustig has directed Maniac, Maniac Cop, and Maniac Cop 2, and Vigilante. Mr. Lustig will discuss his passion for film preservation. For example, The Ipcris File, which will be shown on Saturday, May 9, 2015 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. Now on to the interview. First question is, at the end of the commentary of Maniac Cop 2, you stated you stumbled into DVD restoration and distribution. How did you get started working at Anchor Bay? Well, actually, I never worked as an employee of Anchor Bay. I've always been freelance. Um, but how I stumbled into it is back in the 90s. Do you remember LaserDisc? Yes. Uh, okay, well, I was a LaserDisc fanatic. Um, at the same time, I was also producing and directing movies. Um, I was acquiring rights to films as a hobby and putting them out on LaserDisc. Um, adding commentaries and bonus material and stuff like that uh, to the uh, to the laser discs. I was contacted by Anchor Bay, who wanted to do the same type of presentation, but only on VHS for people who couldn't afford to own laser discs. And so that created a relationship between my my company and Anchor Bay Entertainment. Sometime in, I think it was 97 or 98, I acquired the rights to 21 Hammer Films. I brought Anchor Bay in as a partner, and the deal was that I was going to put them out on Laserdisc, and Anchor Bay was going to put them out on DVD, not on DVD, on VHS. And then um, at some point a year or so later, DVD started to emerge, and we agreed that we would partner on the DVDs. And that led to a partnership that stemmed over, oh, about 400 movies, where my company produced programming for Anchor Bay DVD from about 1998 until 2002 or three. We will be showing the Ipcris file, which was an Anchor Bay release on DVD. Could you talk about the first time you saw that movie and what was your reaction? Well, I saw Ipcris file in a New York City repertory theater probably in the early 70s. And it was one of those films that made that indelible impression on me because it was so unique in the way the film was shot. I was expecting to see a Sean Connery type James Bond film, and was surprised that it was the it was kind of a low key, but yet still very interesting looking spy movie. I loved the film, and I always sang its praises. So when Anchor Bay was about to license films from the Universal Library, I was asked what are some of my favorites, and Ipcris File was on the top of my list. Was there any difficulties in restoring or distributing the Ipcris file? Well, not really. We had access to the negative on it. The film was shot to perforation, and uh, we had access to the four perforation reversal. And so we had very good elements on the film. I don't recall there being any anything unique to the restoration of the film. We did involve Sidney Fury, 
he made himself accessible to come in to look at the color, the grading on it, because I wanted to be sure we did it correctly. We did have the participation of Peter Hunt, the film's editor. There was no problems, really, on Ipcris file. It, you know, it was a really good experience. I wish we had the participation of Michael Caine for the DVD, but that wasn't to be. Of all the movies you've restored and released, was there one that just stood out that was really difficult, that, but you've succeeded? Gosh, uh, you know, each film, surprisingly, has its own problems. There's, there's no real cookie cutter to doing this job because, you know, when films that I deal with that are, you know, 40 plus years old, 40, 50 plus years old, you, you know, they, they deteriorate and they deteriorate differently. Sometimes it could be a problem with the soundtrack. Other times, you know, it could be, it could be problems with the negative. I would say the times that really are the most troublesome is where the negative has had a lot of deterioration. And we just recently had a situation where we were going back to do a high-definition transfer of one of the films we had done 10 years ago and found out that the negative was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. You know, and that makes the film now a lost movie. Wow. You later became founder of Blue Underground, which specializes in releasing DVD and Blu-rays of cult and exploitation movies. Could you just discuss the origins of this company? Well, Blue Underground began... Uh, in 2001, because it became apparent that the owners of Anchor Bay were no longer going to be acquiring new films. Even though the DVD had been very successful, they had done all kinds of studies to determine that they would have to invest a lot more money in Anchor Bay and decided they were going to put it on the sales block. And so I had a company with employees all geared up to do restoration of, of, of movies and create bonus material, and I could see that in a year we weren't going to have any more work to do. So I, I started Blue Underground and started acquiring films specifically for Blue Underground. So there was a transition of my crew working on Banker Bay onto Blue Underground. And that occurred during 2001 and two. So that's how it began. Okay, and why did you name your company Blue Underground? We had another name for the company, and I can't recall what it was, but we couldn't get it cleared through the Secretary of State. And uh, one of the people who worked for me had a company in the U.K., but it was kind of a dormant company at the time called Blue Underground, which he named after two of his favorite pop culture uh, things. Uh, blue was for Blue Velvet, and Underground was for Velvet Underground. So that's how the name Blue Underground was created. But uh, again, we never, you know, we, we didn't think of it as a longevity. We thought of it as a company. You know, we didn't really have, we didn't really see into the future that Blue Underground would still be around so many years later and still putting out new products. So it was kind of interesting. Back up a little bit, I, I did an interview with Randy Jurgensen, and he stated that you got your start on the French Connection. You were there for the entire chase, and could you discuss getting started working in the movies? 
Well, actually, he's mistaken. It's close, but not quite right. The film that he's referring to is The Seven Ups, which was the follow-up to The French Connection with the same producer and director. I don't know if you recall the movie. It starred Roy Scheider and Tony LoBianco. Uh I I didn't work on The French Connection. I was a fan of The French Connection, Uh but I wasn't... uh, I didn't work on the French Connection. Anyway, so how I began is, in my teen years, I I was a, I had just this inexhaustible appetite for movies. I would go to the movies, and I had a a theater not far from where where I lived, where I'd see double features. Later, I, I started going to 42nd Street in my, when I was about 13, 14 years old, watching you know, sometimes upwards of 10 movies a day. And I just had this burning desire to make movies. I don't know exactly where it came from. It was just something that sparked in my head watching some of the great movies that still are great. They weren't just like great at the time, but they were films that really have become classics like Bullet and Bonnie and Clyde and French Connection and Godfather and all these all these incredible movies, The Wild Bunch, The Midnight Cowboy, The Graduate, I can go on and on. But there was that really great period in the late 60s where it seemed like there was, there was just great movies coming out every few months. And I just had to make movies. I just wanted to work on them. So um, we have, my uncle is Jake LaMotta from Raging Bull, and he had a friend who was also kind of a friend of our family, who was making movies at the time, independent films in New York. And in, just as in the early 70s, there was an adult movie boom, and I started working with him on his adult movies as a production assistant. And through my association with Peter Savage, that's the gentleman I'm referring to, mm-hmm. is how I met people like uh, Ralph Serpy who put me to work on a movie called Across 110th Street. Later, I met uh, um, Phil D'Antoni and uh, Kenny Utt. It was actually Kenny Utt who put me to work on, on 7-Ups. And I started to, um, you know, network in New York. And I was young, and uh, I was energetic, and, and they would hire me because I would work and do anything. And that was it, and that's how I got my start. You stated that on the Maniac Audio Commentary, and you just in the previous question, you got your film education by watching movies on 42nd Street. You also stated it's a bygone era. Could you give me an idea what it was like going to the movies during that era on 42nd Street? The best cinematic depiction of that is two movies, Taxi Driver and uh, Midnight Cowboy, which really depict the, the 42nd Street experience, probably Midnight Cowboy more than uh, Taxi Driver. But what it was like is you had a street where each theater, each and there was maybe, let me see, there was about 10, maybe 10 big cinemas all on one block. And they would show double features starting at uh, 8 to 9 o'clock in the morning, running until about 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, allowing a couple of hours uh, for the theater to be cleaned up. They were showing uh, first-run movies, often playing around the corner on, on Times Square for much higher admission price. 
always has double features, and and there was a diversity of of, of stuff they would show. You could go see in, in one theater, say, classic westerns, and in another theater next door, you would see Fellini films. And down the street, they would be having Swedish uh, sexploitation films. And across the street, there would be AIP horror films and Hammer films. And, you know, it was just this incredible place where, you know, you could see anything you wanted at almost any time of day. And as a film buff, it was like I, I didn't know any different. It just seemed like, you know, I, was, I, was, I didn't realize what I had at the time. And then, there were, at the, at, at, back in that period, there were repertory theaters spread out all over Manhattan. There was the Thalia in, in the night in the Upper West Side. There was the, you know, there was the Beacon Street, uh, the Beacon Theater in, in the, you know, in 72nd Street. There, I could go, I could name all the theaters. And there was the Bleecker Street Cinema, all these places that showed repertory movies and often they would they would have double features maybe three a week they would uh, each of these theaters would show the you know repertory films and that was just incredible to be able to see the all these movies on a big screen i didn't know what i had i i really i really pity the people that are growing up on movies today that are watching most of them on an ipad you described the making of Maniac as guerrilla filmmaking and shooting without permits or permission. And was there a moment during that movie where you said, boy, we really pulled one off that time. We really got away with it during the making of Maniac. Well, there was actually two times where I had that experience. One was, and this involves Randy Jerkinson, we were shooting in the 59th Street subway, and we did ask permission to be able to shoot on the upper platforms where the um, where you pay to get in, uh, you know the turnstile, and also where there's an exit, we could not get permission to shoot on the actual subway platform because you needed like a really expensive insurance policy that's only issued by Lloyd's of London. That's the only way you could put a crew working on a subway platform around live subway trains. So what we did is we shot the section in Maniac where the girl goes through the turnstile and goes down the stairs. And Randy, who, as you probably know, was a Gold Shield detective and was a, kind of a celebrity at the time, he then, after we shot that, we sort of winked at each other because he knew I wanted to shoot on the subway platform, and he took the subway representative uh, out for dinner so we could get away with shooting on the platform. And that's how we were able to shoot those sections where she's pounding on the door of the train and all of that. We had absolutely no permission, no permission to be able to put a camera on the subway. That was shot totally without any permission whatsoever. So we got away with that. The second thing we got away with, which in, in looking back on it, it was kind of stupid of us, but we shot the scene of uh, Tom Savini's head being blown off with a shotgun right by an active freeway behind the car and on 
basically a, a, the city streets. Now, there is no permit in the world that would allow you to fire in New York City live ammunition on the streets of New York. There's just nothing – they would never permit it, and they – this is no way. This, this doesn't exist. And here we had a double full-load shotgun being fired next to a freeway right behind it with cars passing. It was stupid. That was stupid of us to do, but we got away with it. And one of the things I remember was after we did the scene, I grabbed the shotgun because Tom Savini doubled Joe Spinell firing the shotgun. I grabbed the shotgun out of Tom Savini's hands threw it in the trunk of a car and told a production assistant to head for New Jersey because I didn't want to have any smoking guns around just in case the police were called. You also said that the helicopter shots were from Dario Argento's Inferno. And uh, What was your job on Inferno, and how did you get those shots for your well, movie? Well, um, Andy Garoni, my co-producer on Maniac, and I, in that period, we were doing what's called production service work, where, where mostly in, at that time because of Andy's father having a background in the Italian film industry, we were doing the New York sequences for, we were, we were basically doing all the production service work, meaning we would arrange for locations, crew, insurance, all the permits, anything you would need to shoot in New York City, we would arrange for these foreign crews to be able to come in and shoot sequences for their films. Well, in the case of Inferno, after Dario and crew left, they wanted some helicopter shots. So they paid for us. Uh, actually, Andy was the one who went up in the helicopter to shoot aerial shots of New York City. But what had happened, there was a problem with the camera causing a slight fluttering in the picture, making it unusable for Inferno. But we still had the negative sitting around. So when we were doing Maniac, we said, hey, we still have that, we still have that great production value stuff that we shot for Inferno. Let's put it into Maniac. So that's how we reached. We, we, we basically took out of the dumpster footage uh, for, that, we, uh, that we used for Maniac that was intended for Inferno. On the Uncle Sam commentary, you stated you made a movie in Nashville, and what was the movie? I worked on a movie there called, it was eventually called The Expert. It was shot under the title Brute Force. Oh, yeah. And we shot it at Tennessee State Prison. It starred Jeff Speakman. And I directed, I would say, about 90% of the movie, but I didn't put my name on it. It was not a good experience, not anything. I loved Nashville. I thought Nashville was great. I had a wonderful time there. I stayed at Spence Manor, hung out at the Sunset Grill and Pancake Pantry, and that was just a lot of fun. Met a lot of great people there. I really missed Nashville. The experience of making that film really wasn't, wasn't good because I, I just thought Jeff Speakman was awful. It was difficult to direct a movie where the star is just so... You know his his he his, you know he had more ego than talent. It was just difficult. You had mentioned on the vigilante commentary. He sounded like an interesting guy, a film salesman by Irv Shapiro. Was he Irvin, major, Yes. Was he one of the major factors in getting Maniac sold? Oh, absolutely. I will say, we made the movie, 
but it was Irvin who had the vision of how to sell Maniac to make it special. He really was a brilliant marketeer. I'll tell you, one of the things he did that was interesting is, at the time, Dolby Stereo wasn't very popular. It was just emerging. I was fortunate that the studio I, I had mixed Maniac in had already Dolby Stereo installed because they had, a, they had done the, the sound for the movie All That Jazz. So they had Dolby installed. So I said, gee, can I get access to use the Dolby Stereo system for my movie Maniac, my little movie Maniac, which was unheard of. Low, 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 low budget movies did not have Dolby Stereo soundtracks. So I was quite proud that we got away with getting this major sound enhancement. So when it came time to screening the film in Cannes, there was only one or two theaters in Cannes that had Dolby Stereo, and they were the biggest theaters in, in, in Cannes. So I was campaigning Irvin Shapiro, that's where we got a premier maniac, so we give it the best presentation. Irvin, on the other hand, said, no, we need to screen maniac in the smallest theater in Cannes, and that's where we're going to premiere the movie. And on top of it, we're going to invite local kids to come in the theater to sit amongst the distributors. And at the time, I really didn't fully understand why he was doing it. I just thought he was being cheap and not wanting to spend the money for the big theater. And I really felt it was a detriment to the presentation of the film. It wasn't until we had the screening, which was at midnight, and the theater was completely packed, and they were turning people away at the door that I begin to understand what he was doing. And what he was trying to do is putting the distributors in a sold-out theater with kids in the theater screaming and yelling during the movie, during, you know, at the scary parts. The next day, people were talking about how they couldn't get into the screening of Maniac and that it was sold out and nobody can get into the screening. But no one ever asked the follow-up question, how many seats were in the theater? So Irvin, by, by his genius of putting it in this small theater, created such a demand for people to want to see the movie, you know? And we would have never had that had we had it in the more accessible big theater. Probably we wouldn't even have sold out the theater. So it was a bit of genius on his part. I remember a German distributor bought the film sight unseen based on the excitement that he was hearing from the first screening of the film. Hadn't seen the movie, bought it for a really good price for Germany, just by hearing all the people talking about the movie and the uh, reaction of the, of the people in the theater. The editor of Uncle Sam was Bob Murawski, who... Murawski, yes. Mur yeah, who also owns a cult film distribution, Grindhouse Releasing, and... Did you two ever exchange notes, talk shop about what films you're releasing? Well, actually, Grindhouse, I was originally a part of Grindhouse releasing uh, with him and Sage Stallone, and I kind of bailed out of it uh, to start my own thing. And the reason for that was, you know, Bob was busy doing, you know, his day job, and Sage really wasn't very active in the company. And I saw it as something where I would be basically 
kind of tasked with carrying the load. And at the time, I really wasn't ready to do that. So um, I started my own company, and but Bob and I have remained friends over the years, and yeah, we we exchange notes occasionally, and we use a lot of the same people working on the films. While you were at Anchor Bay and now at Blue Underground, you do such a great job with the image, special features, you know, audio commentaries, even the Easter eggs. Do you have an overall philosophy when you release a DVD or Blu-ray? Yes, I do. And this is something I think about a lot. I think about our customer, whatever the film is, that's my customer's favorite film of all time. And I feel a really strong obligation to spare no expense to present to that customer the very best that that movie can be. Now, there's a certain amount of reasonableness to that. I can't say I, 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 I do it with a complete blank check, but I do make every effort. If I ha- whatever I have to do, I go above and beyond to try to, to try to deliver to the customer the very, very best that that film could be. The other thing is, is when we do interviews with talent interviews and commentaries, it's very important to me that they not be very generalized, but that they be specific and carry a thought and a theme. I don't like when, you know, I see some of these, you know, some of my competitors do interviews and they just let the talent sort of take the lead and kind of ramble on. I like when things are tightly, you know, when we're delivering a tight idea to the viewer about a particular film. So I I think we do a very good job as far as the special features are concerned. They're just not haphazard. The future of Blue Underground, do you have any interesting releases coming up for the future? Well, we're working on right now the Enzo Castellari New York apocalyptic films like 1990, The Bronx Warriors, Escape from the Bronx, The New Barbarians. That's something I'm I'm working on right now. We're also doing an, a brand new Lost Spaghetti Western starring Franco Nero called Man, Pride, and Vengeance, which we're premiering the week after next at L.A. Italia in L.A., and Franco is doing an introduction. And so, yeah, we got those we're working on. And we have other projects, you know, coming up in the future that to be announced. This will be the last question. It's an unfair question. You're releasing the Dario Argento collection and the Lucio Fellucci collection. Uh, This is a desert island question. If you had to choose between the two, which would you choose? I'd have to say Dario Argento. Just because it was Argento's films that really introduced me to the world of Italian genre films. His movie Bird with the Crystal Plumage was, I believe, the very first Italian import thriller that I had seen, and it just made such an incredible impression on me that I, would, if, if I had to choose, it would always be Argento.
I would like to thank William Lustig for granting the interview. So remember, please come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street on Saturday, May 9th at 2 p.m. to see The Ipcris File. Thank you.